welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the arterial, venous and lymphatic system module from the general surgical curriculum. And the operational topics we'll be covering today is essentially venous disease. And I'm going to talk about chronic venous insufficiency, varicose veins and deep venous thrombosis. So to start off with, let's talk about chronic venous insufficiency. And I'm going to combine chronic venous insufficiency with varicose veins because essentially varicose veins are one of the sequelae of chronic venous insufficiency. So to start with some definitions. So chronic venous insufficiency is a syndrome where there's sustained venous hypertension in the lower legs. And this leads to edema, progressive skin changes, and ulceration in the limb. Varicose veins are abnormally dilated, elongated, tortuous subcutaneous veins. And these are produced because of prolonged increase in intramural pressure within the veins and subsequent loss of vessel wall support. Just to talk about a little bit of anatomy of the lower limb veins, There's both a superficial and a deep system of veins, and these systems are connected by perforator veins. If you have a look up of a picture of perforator veins, the perforators in the different locations have specific names. So the May perforators are the ones around the medial ankle, the Crockett perforators around the posterior arch, Boyd's perforators are around the knee, Dodd's perforators are at the distal thigh and the Hunter-Ian perforators are at the proximal thigh with the perforator we all know the most about being the saphenofemoral junction. I don't think we need to necessarily remember the names, but it's good to look at a picture and see that these perforators are usually found in relatively standard locations along the limb. In terms of the superficial venous system, there's the long saphenous vein, which is also sometimes called the great saphenous vein. And this forms from the dorsal venous arch and travels anterior to the medial malleolus, travels up the medial aspect of the leg before crossing the posterior border of the femoral epicondyle, and then traveling more anteriorly to end up inserting into the femoral vein three to four centimetres inferolateral to the pubic tubercle. The short saphenous vein, also called the lesser saphenous vein, again has its origin from the dorsal venous arch, but passes on the other side, posterior inferior to the lateral malleolus, and then travels up the posterior calf with the sural nerve before passing between the heads of the gastrocnemius to drain into the popliteal vein. The deep venous system essentially follows the arterial supply of the leg. So let's talk a little bit about the pathogenesis of chronic venous hypertension. So the factors that lead to chronic venous hypertension can be grouped into three different groups. The first is venous reflux due to vein incompetence or valve incompetence. The second is due to occlusive deep venous disease, and the third can be due to calf pump failure. 
and one or more of these conditions can be present leading to chronic venous hypertension. So in terms of valve incompetence, this can be primary due to degenerative changes of the valves or secondary due to previous DVTs, trauma or inflammation of the vein. Occlusive deep venous disease can be due to a DVT or can be due to extrinsic compression or outflow obstruction due to obesity or a tumor or May-Turner syndrome. And calf pump failure can be due to immobility, people who have prolonged standing as part of their working life or because of ankle stiffness or a poor muscle bulk. In terms of what leads to the consequences of venous hypertension, the consequences we think about are hyperpigmentation or hemosiderosis, lipodermatosclerosis, venous eczema, and ulceration. And it's important to keep these in mind because you can see these on examination and this can help you determine that the venous hypertension or chronic venous insufficiency is the cause of their ulceration. So chronic venous hypertension leads to edema and swelling in the tissues and varicose veins lead to an increase in pressure in the superficial system. This increase in pressure in the superficial system leads to a number of sequelae. So firstly, the white cells can leak out of the smaller vessels and this can lead to inflammation and local tissue damage. Fibrinogen leaks out of the vessels and this leads to the formation of a fibrin cuff around the small vessels, which reduces the ability for oxygen to cross from the vessel to the surrounding tissue, especially the skin, and this leads to local ischemia. Red cells leak out of the vessels and this leads to these red cells being taken up by local tissue macrophages, causing hemosiderin to be deposited in the macrophages. And that's what leads to this characteristic skin staining appearance. And all of these things lead to hyperpigmentation or hemosiderosis, that dark skin color, lipodermatosclerosis, which is essentially fibrosis and thickening of the skin and subcutaneous tissues, venous eczema, so flaky skin, which is itchy. And eventually, because of these local changes, tissue damage, um, and reduction in the ability for oxygen to get to the skin, venous ulceration. The risk factors for the development of venous hypertension and venous insufficiency in varicose veins are increasing age, obesity, pregnancy, local trauma, an occupational lifestyle that's either sedentary or has lots of standing, and also a family history of venous disease. So how do patients who have chronic venous insufficiency present? So on history, they may complain of leg swelling, aching, hyperpigmentation, itchiness due to the venous eczema, or ulceration. And on history, you want to ask them about those risk factors. So history of previous DVTs, thrombophilias, risk factors for DVT as outflow obstruction can be a cause of this pathology, and also previous venous interventions. On examination, you want to examine the patient both lying down and standing to look for varicosities. 
and you're going to look at the limb and look for previous scars, the distribution of the varicosities. You can also look for the presence of a saphenovarix, which is a variceal dilatation at the saphenofemoral junction. And if you look up a spot picture of this, this can be mistaken for a femoral hernia because of its location, but you can palpate it and feel for a thrill when the patient coughs, which is called Cruvelia's sign. Or if you have your hand over the varix and then percuss on a distal uh, varics in the leg, then you might be able to feel that impulse up over the saphenovarix. You also want to look for skin changes consistent with chronic venous disease, which as we've mentioned is hemosiderosis, venous eczema, lipodermatosclerosis, and ulceration. And you also want to assess for other factors that may contribute to venous hypertension, such as immobility, obesity, ankle stiffness, so there's failure of that calf pump, or a reduced muscle bulk in the calf. And you also want to have a look at the arterial status of the leg by palpating the pulses whenever you're worried about venous disease. There is a classification system that can be used when talking about examination findings for chronic venous disease, and this is the CEAP classification. C stands for clinical E stands for etiology, but it's an American score, so it's etiology spelt with E. Anatomy is what A stands for, and the P is for pathophysiology. I just remember the clinical staging part of the CEAP classification, and this grades the clinical findings from C0 to C6. C0 is no clinical signs. C1 is small varicose veins. C2 is large varicose veins. C3 is edema. C4 is skin changes without ulceration. So that's the lipodermatosclerosis, eczema, or um, hemosiderosis. C5 is skin changes with a healed ulceration. And C6 is skin changes with active ulceration. If you have a patient presenting with history and exam consistent with venous disease, the gold standard imaging modality is a venous duplex ultrasound. And a duplex ultrasound will enable you to identify sites of valvular incompetence to confirm the patency of the deep venous system to make sure there's not an underlying DVT or other pathology. It can also assess the suitability of the superficial veins for endovenous intervention and identify any anatomical variations or recurrent varicose veins in previous treatment. So let's talk a little bit about management of chronic venous insufficiency and varicose veins. So in general, non-operative and conservative management should be instituted for all of these patients. And so this includes elevating the limb as much as possible, lifestyle management with weight loss and encouraging exercise. And the last thing really is leg compression, which is really important for venous disease. Some tips here is that obviously you should check that there's no concurrent arterial disease at the same time because you don't want to compress a limb that has chronic arterial ischemia. 
And there are different classes of compression that you can use for patients. And this is graded as class one, two, three, and four. And the classes have to do with the amount of pressure that the stocking or the compression stocking actually provides. So class one is less than 25 millimeters of mercury, and this is good for mild varicose veins, patients who need DVT prophylaxis. So the TED stockings at the hospitals would be class one compression. Class two is 25 to 35 millimeters of mercury, and this is good for patients with venous insufficiency that have edema or patients with severe varicose veins. Class three is 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury, and this is for chronic venous insufficiency with um, venous ulceration, especially if they've had venous ulcers in the past, and can also be used for patients with lymphedema. And class four is 45 to 60 millimeters of mercury, and this is for very severe lymphedema or severe chronic venous insufficiency. And the Advantages of leg compression is that it does improve symptoms, it obviously conceals the varicosities, and it prevents progression of the venous disease because it's compressing the superficial venous system so that you're not getting that chronic inflammation and edema and eventual progression to ulceration. And it should be used even for patients who do have venous ulceration as it's been proven to help treat venous ulcers. 65 to 70% of venous ulcers will be healed at three months with these non-surgical interventions and 80 to 90% at 12 months. For varicose veins, who actually gets surgical intervention or management of this pathology? And that basically has to do with your individual institution as well as Medicare funding for varicose veins in the public sector. So varicose veins in the public system is only funded for CEAP score um, C3 or above, so edema or above. And in general, anyone who has these lower limb skin changes with associated symptoms should be offered treatment. And patients who've had ulceration, whether it's an active ulcer or a healed ulcer, should also be offered intervention. There's a few different types of treatment options for varicose veins. So the first type is ablation with either radiofrequency or lasers or thermal ablation. These basically involve using heat to destroy the trunk of the long saphenous vein. And this can be done in the office and usually requires an injection of local anesthetic um, in quite a high volume of fluid underneath the skin, between the skin and the vein, so that you get uh, at least a centimetre between the skin and the vein before you heat the vein, as one of the risks is burns to the skin. And essentially you use an ultrasound to enter into the vein and then use either radiofrequency ablation or laser to ablate the vein. Another minimally invasive option is ultrasound-guided foam sclerotherapy, which can be useful for small varicose veins below the knee and basically uses ultrasound guidance to inject a chemical into the veins, which leads to fibrosis. Um, and there's multiple different things that can be used. So a type of detergent called sodium tetradiesel sulfate, or an osmotic chemical such as hypertonic saline or chromated glycerin, which is an irritant, can all be used and injected into the veins. 
Again, this is a treatment that can usually be done in the clinic or in the rooms. From a surgical point of view, the operations that I've seen include ligation of the saphenofemoral junction with stripping of the long saphenous vein from the knee to its insertion and also multiple stab avulsions where you basically stab into the varicosity and then use a little hook to pull that part of the vein out. And surgically as well, you can identify points of incompetent perforators and ligate those perforators. In clinical practice, um, this is usually done with ultrasound marking prior in order to show the location of the perforators. And also you need to mark out where the varicosities are before you lie the patient down for your stab avulsions. And I think these aren't done quite as commonly anymore in clinical practice um, because of these other options, Um, but I've definitely seen it done and it's probably something to be aware of. In terms of these operations, it's in the operative nose part of our curriculum. So I think we need to know the principles, but not necessarily how you would perform the operation. In terms of potential risks of treatment of varicose veins, There's obviously a risk of bleeding and bruising. Specifically to the ablation, you can get skin damage, as I've mentioned. For the sclerotherapy, there's this very rare risk of development of neurological symptoms or strokes, which apparently is more common in patients who have migraines, so that's something to be aware of. Obviously, any destruction of a superficial vein potentially can cause thrombosis and extension of that thrombosis into the deep venous system. So development of a DVT and PE is a risk. And some vascular surgeons will put these patients on anticoagulation after these procedures. There's a risk of nerve damage, um, especially of the saphenous nerve at the knee, which travels with the great saphenous vein, or of the sural nerve, which travels with the short saphenous vein. And obviously there's a risk of recurrence in the longer term. And there's been lots of different trials looking at which particular procedures are better. And the CLASS trial in 2014 published in the New England Journal of Medicine essentially showed that all of these procedures had similar efficacy. In terms of chronic venous insufficiency, um, the other thing to know about surgically is the use of endovascular stenting, which may be useful in May-Turner syndrome. I mentioned May-Turner syndrome earlier, which is essentially a condition where there is compression of the proximal left common iliac vein due to the overlying common right iliac artery where it crosses over it. And this leads to compression of the vein and an intraluminal constriction due to either a web or a membrane forming. And so stenting open that part of the internal iliac vein may be an option. And rarely other procedures such as venous bypass for outflow obstruction may be considered. So let's move to talk about deep venous thrombosis, or DVT. Deep venous thrombosis can be classified according to its anatomical location. So it can be considered distal to the popliteal vein, proximal to the popliteal vein, or in the iliofemoral segment. The pathogenesis of DVT is related to Virchow's triad, 
which is taking me all the way back to medical school. But if we remember, those are three things, hypercoagulability, venous stasis, and endothelial injury. So causes of hypercoagulability or a hypercoagulable state include trauma, burns, malignancy, pregnancy and postpartum, nephrotic syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, and sepsis. And then the different thrombophilia syndromes include both hereditary and acquired. The common hereditary ones I'm going to remember for the exam are protein C and protein S deficiency, antithrombin 3, factor V Leiden, and prothrombin gene mutation. And then acquired include lupus anticoagulant and anticardiolipan antibodies. The second thing in Virchow's triad is venous stasis, which can happen because of immobility, prolonged surgical time, varicose veins, and venous obstruction due to tumors or obesity. And then endothelial imagery can be due to trauma or surgery, as well as other iatrogenic causes such as venipuncture, lines, and pacemakers. So how do patients with DVTs present? In general, they could be completely asymptomatic, or they may notice leg swelling or calf tenderness. There's also a couple of clinical presentations that I've seen as spot questions before, at least in practice. And so the first of these is a condition called phlegmasia cerulea dolens, which essentially is a painful blue-purple colored leg due to overwhelming venous outflow obstruction. And this is an emergency situation because the limb is at risk because of that outflow obstruction and edema eventually leading to potential arterial inflow obstruction. And then the second is phlegmasia alba dolens. And this is a white leg in relation to DVT and apparently is a common syndrome post-pregnancy. In terms of a patient who's presenting with symptoms or signs and you're suspicious for a DVT or PE, you can use a WELLS score to determine whether or not you want to do imaging. The WELLS score gives one point for each of the following. Active cancer in the last six months, paralysis or immobilization of the lower extremities, bedridden for more than three days or major surgery within four weeks, calf swelling or the entire leg being swollen, pitting edema, collateral superficial veins, a previous DVT, and you lose two points if there's an alternative diagnosis that's more likely. And if a patient has a score of two or more, then they're considered high risk and you do some imaging. Or if there's a score of zero to one, then they're low risk and you do a D-dimer. And if that's negative, you don't need any imaging. So in terms of investigations for DVT, I've mentioned when you might do some imaging And the imaging options that we have are obviously a venous duplex ultrasound, which will have a look for the compressibility of the veins as thrombus is not compressible and also can look for venous flow, which can be absent in the setting of a thrombus. It's good at looking 
at the popliteal vein and the common femoral vein. But some of the other veins can be a bit difficult to find because they're small and deep. And obviously, you're not going to get good views of the iliac vein or the IVC with an ultrasound. A CT or MRI venogram is the other option. And this uses intravenous contrast and a CT image to see if there's any flow or filling defects in the veins. This can be useful to determine the extent of thrombus and whether there's any extension up into the iliac veins or the IVC. In terms of testing for a procoagulant state, essentially this is indicated in the setting of an unprovoked DVT, especially in a patient with a young age or a family history. And the main tests that you want to test for, as I've mentioned, are protein C and protein S deficiency, factor V Leiden, antithrombin 3, and prothrombin gene mutation. So the management of deep venous thrombosis includes use of graduated compression stockings. And these should be put on early after the diagnosis of a DVT to reduce the risk of post-thrombotic syndrome. In terms of medical management of DVTs, essentially this is anticoagulation. You may consider observation for a distal DVT, so distal to the popliteal vein, and repeat the ultrasound in two weeks to look for propagation. And if there is no propagation, then you could continue to monitor that patient. And if there is propagation, then you would give the patient anticoagulation. For all other types of DVTs, you need to give anticoagulation. And the options include warfarin, a novel oral anticoagulant such as a pixaban, rivaroxaban or dabigatran, or the use of heparin, which can be unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin. Warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist and essentially reduces the production of vitamin K dependent factors such as 2, 7, 9 and 10. The important thing about warfarin is that it is actually pro-coagulant in the first 24 hours because it has an early effect on protein C and protein S. So you need to give a patient heparin to cover yourself while you're starting warfarin. No- novel oral anticoagulants include apixaban and rivaroxaban, which are factor 10A inhibitors, and dabigatran, which is a direct thrombin inhibitor. And they are used pretty commonly for DVTs, apart from patients who have an underlying antiphospholipid syndrome where warfarin should be used for those patients. And low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin really should only be used um, in the acute setting um, and not for long term. Absolute contraindications to anticoagulation include patients with platelets less than 50, active hemorrhage or intracerebral hemorrhage in the last six months. And for these patients where you can't anticoagulate them, you may consider an IVC filter, which is going to prevent propagation of the clot and flicking off to cause a PE, but obviously doesn't treat the DVT itself. So it's just a bridging measure. Duration of medical therapy really depends on whether it's a provoked or an unprovoked DVT. So if it's a provoked DVT, typically you'd anticoagulate the patient for three months and then reassess with an ultrasound to see if the clot has gone and if so, then cease anticoagulation. 
For patients who have recurrent DVTs or unprovoked DVTs, these are the ones that are probably going to need lifelong anticoagulation. There are some interventional options for DVTs, which are essentially reserved for patients with extensive DVTs extending into the iliac veins and in patients with significant symptoms such as a big swollen leg or phlegmasia cerulea dolens. I can't tell you how many times I had to re-record myself saying that. That's difficult to get out. Um, And so for these patients, they may be considered for catheter-directed therapies in order to prevent the risk of post-thrombotic syndrome if they're within two weeks of their symptoms developing. And so the different types include mechanical thrombectomy, where they suction out the clot, or injecting urokinase or alteplase through a catheter, which promotes fibrinolysis by changing plasminogen to plasmin, which breaks down the clot, or a combination where they combine both suctioning as well as injections of thrombolytic agents. Surgical thrombectomy is also an option and might be considered if thrombolysis or anticoagulation is contraindicated and essentially involves a cut down and using a Fogarty balloon to remove the thrombus via a groin incision. So if you have a patient with significant DVT, it's worth getting a vascular consult for those patients. So just briefly to finish us off, I wanted to talk about post-thrombotic syndrome. Post-thrombotic syndrome is a syndrome with a range of symptoms that occurs after DVT, and it can affect up to 20 to 50% of patients with DVTs within two years of the DVT having happened. And if you have iliofemoral disease, then the risk is higher. The precise etiology is unclear, but it's thought to be related to poor recanalization of the vein or chronic scarring, which means that the vein can't dilate up as well as it usually would when it needs to. And the symptoms are classified by the Velata Prandoni scale, which looks at both symptoms and clinical signs. Symptoms can include pains, cramps, heaviness, paresthesia and pruritus and patients can develop pain um, after exercise similar to claudication but it takes a much longer time to resolve than arterial pain and clinical signs include pretibial edema skin induration hyperpigmentation redness pain on calf compression venous ulceration and this can affect patients quality of life The management, as I've said previously, is prevention if possible. So in patients with severe DVTs, trying to get them to have one of those catheter-directed therapies if possible early on and making sure that you get a compression stocking on early, as well as exercise, managing ulceration, avoiding skin trauma and making sure there's meticulous skin care and fixing any venous outflow issues such as stenting for May-Turner syndrome if that's appropriate. And that completes this week's episode on venous diseases. Please leave me a review, rate the podcast and subscribe. It makes it easier for others to find and I love reading your reviews. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, 
send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>